This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Investors Roundtable. Happy New Year. This is actually the first roundtable of 2021, and I couldn't be joined by a a more awesome crew. Uh, Real quick, I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft, B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. Let me introduce you to your panel today. These are the, the busiest investors in the game right now. I only know because they took 100 meetings each at our at my event last week. So uh, I'd like to introduce you to Chris Krug from Chatham Harbor Capital. What's up, Chris? How you doing? Doing pretty well. How about you, Bobby? Oh, you know, just another day in digital LA, you know, dogs barking <laughs> in the background, you know, whatever. Uh, we, we got we got Brian Weber from BRW Partners LP. What's up, Brian? Uh, hi, Robert. How are you doing? Oh, you know, like I said, digital LA, dogs barking, same deal. Uh, <laughs> we also also joining us today is Artem Falken from Carol Can Capital. Artem, how you do? You know, this is not fair. You know, Chris is doing the 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 San Francisco background. You're actually in San Francisco. You're in the woods somewhere, I think. I don't know. You know, but but either way, what's up, Artem? Yeah, Bobby, and you're 100% correct. It's me who lives 15 minutes away from Golden Gate Bridge, while Chris, who is my good friend, showing it there. It's not clear to me at all. Yeah, I'm a Manhattan guy. And I'm in boring uh, Yonkers, New York right now, so we all are in interesting places. Oh, come on. Give us some. Give us a Yonkers background. Let's go. I mean, uh, everyone here is really, really... Oh, look. Oh, there it is. Look at that. That's Yonkers right there. Nice. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, I gathered you, we all gathered today. I gathered you. You got this is actually kind of your idea. Like, let's let you know, we we all miss going to in person events, right? I I think everyone and and their mother in our space is missing going to in person events right now. So, I thought it'd be kind of fun since you guys were major participants at our event that we just had the SNN Network Counter virtual event. It might be kind of fun to just, you know, post show, we're at the bar, we're having that happy hour and just talking about what was interesting, you know, from the keynotes. The, the, the educational panels, the companies that you saw that you, you thought were interesting. You know, I'm not going to ask you your best ideas or anything like that. But, you know, at the same time, this was something that was near and dear to your hearts because I know that you love looking at some of these, you know, out of nowhere Canadian microcaps as well. So, you know, to start off, Chris, you know, let's get let's get your wrap, you know, let, let's let's kick this off. Oh, yeah, I thought it was one of the best conferences I've been to in a while, if not ever, in terms Thank of the you. quality of the companies. So, uh, I like the other guys. Uh, we we look at a lot of um, Canadian microcaps uh, because number one, like this disclosures better uh, compared to OTC listing companies. Uh, the, in general, they're cheaper. There are a bunch of things that are that are really interesting, um, and especially with the I guess somewhat frothiness of some uh, some of the U.S. markets, uh, we like it a lot. So, want to make sure I can. Very cool. Yeah, no, you were there in force, man. That's for sure. So, uh, Brian, give, give me your thoughts. You know, that, listen, you don't have to pat me on the back for a great conference. If you want to, that's fine. But, you know, but 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 at the end of the day, you know, wh- why why was this an event that you really wanted to go to? What about Canadian microcaps is so fascinating to you? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people don't really look in Canada because, you know, they think it's two commodity-based businesses or they just, you know, they don't really have, they, they don't really recognize, I guess, you know, the 
you know, the industry or the name, but like, I think there's a lot of, you know, out of favor kind of less people looking in that space type ideas. And, you know, when you have less people looking at a space, there's obviously a lot more opportunity. So, I mean, that, that's always been attracting me to Canada. Very cool. All right. Let, well, I want to hear you guys strategies, you know, what are some of the things that you look for? And is it any different than what you look for when you're assessing some North American microcaps or sorry, well, US microcaps, I guess that's a Artem, you know, let me go to you on this one. The, the fundamental strategy, I think, doesn't change much, but the elements of execution and search for ideas and what you try to accomplish can be different. So, for example, if you, as an investor, when I want to find companies relatively early in their life cycle and find them relatively early and catch them before they start experiencing rapid growth, chances are that company early on may not be listed in the United States. It may be listed in Canada or somewhere else. So that's one of the reasons why Canada is very attractive. Now, when we talk about Canadian microcaps, I think there is a little bit of misnomer there, and this is what I mean. Some of those, what people call Canadian microcaps, they're not Canadian. They're US companies doing business in the US and maybe management never been to Canada at all. And probably they crossed the border once at least because it's pretty close to go to ring the bell in Toronto Stock Exchange or something like this. But for all practical purposes, it's a US business with US management team, with US customers. So you diligence that in the same way as you diligence US company. You talk to management, you talk to competitors, you talk to customers, you try to figure out the product, you try to figure out the financials, all those things. So, but at the same time, some companies are more Canadian, meaning they have Canadian management team, but very often the management at some point brings that business to the US. So similar, it's kind of quasi Canadian US business. So again, many elements strategically are similar, but there is obviously nuances in terms of how I execute on that. Very good. Uh, Chris, you want to add to that? I mean, do, yeah, do you yeah, share sure. thought process? I, yeah, th there's some interesting features of the Canadian markets, especially like the Toronto Venture Exchange. You can do direct listings and very small IPOs like uh, like what Artem was saying. Uh, there, there's CPCs, which are interesting. It's basically mini SPACs uh, and there's tons of them. I mean, uh, I can't remember the exact amount, but there might be, I think, I think the stat I have is uh, six to 700 of them have graduated from the uh, Toronto Venture to the TSX over the last 20 years. And I think there's something you may know better than I do, something like 500 or so listed right now looking for deals. And the average length is, I, I believe, two years, they have to do a deal in two months or two years. They just change the rules though. But, but these are, these are like $5 million companies instead of uh, the size of the SPACs in the United States. But but yeah, there, there, there's so many different unique features of uh, Canadian exchanges that that it's it's very interesting. It's a really interesting place to look. And yeah, I think it's a lot easier to go public too, I think, right? Yeah. That, that's part of it. And so yeah. it's important to like filter out that because it's easier to go public, there might be some not so great companies among among them as well. So, you know, it's just like a, a lot of opportunities, but also you got to be careful as well, kind of with the marketplace. Yeah, I mean, oh, sorry, Artem, you're going to say? I think Brian is making a very interesting point, which as an investor, I always deal with, and probably all of us do, when a small company goes public in Canada relatively early on, and I invest a lot in technology and software. So let's say imagine a software company that happens to be public in Canada. You always ask yourself a question, why did you go public instead of raising venture capital money in Silicon Valley or somewhere else in the US? Is it, and does it mean that this is a lemon? In, necessarily because you just went to go public in Canada and there is something inherently bad with your company. And the answer is that sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's not. And this is what the job of an investor is. Do your diligence, figure out, again, picking up on software as an example, 
figure out whether software is well-built, figure out the caliber of engineering talent, figure out whether customers are happy or not, whether they're renewing, whether they want to switch, and all those things. So the only way to answer that question is through doing diligence and answering, yeah, indeed, it's a lemon that happened to be public in the US, in Canada because it couldn't raise any venture money, or it's a plum and it's good company, but everybody looks at it as if it was a lemon. Hold on, Artem. I got so a good company is a plum. All right, I, I, I'll, I'll take. I like plums. All right, we'll go with that. Right? This is okay. This is not my invention, to be clear. Even though I love all <laughs> type of fruits, right? It's uh, I can love who came up with this concept back in I think seventies. Fair, fair enough. That's true. All right, I just gave you a little shit. All right, so Chris, uh, you know, coming to you on this, you know, because we talked offline a little bit about how easy it is for companies to go public in, in Canada. I mean, I, I mean, I would argue it's, it's, it's not even that much more difficult one way or another, but still companies that have US operations, US management teams are looking on that side of the border, you know, in Australia too. I mean, they're looking at all sorts of different venture markets. Well, you know, well, so let's, is, yeah. So, so it's cheaper, right? So I, I think this, the lowest tier is $7,500 a year to list in on the Toronto venture where the, uh, the OTCQB is, I think, 25,000 or something like that. So, I mean, for smaller companies, like sub $10 million companies, that's way cheaper. And, and a unique feature about it is that uh, piggyback on what Artem said, a lot of the financials are in US dollars or even euros which you, it, it confuses investors a lot. So uh, companies can be a lot cheaper than they appear because the, the actual like financials are in a different um, currency. So, so it's, it's really interesting. And to make yeah, things that's why, Canada, in America and Australia, they all use dollar as their currency. So if they had different names, people will be less confused, but because it's the same word, it's people are really confused sometimes. Right, yeah. And, uh, London does it as well. I mean, there are a lot of aim listed companies that are that are in US dollars or euros or, or whatever. So but but that works against you because the pound is stronger. But it's interesting. Yeah, and I, th I think that's where some of these um, conferences like the one you hosted is really good because, you know, a lot of people might just look at cap IQ quickly and, you know, see the see the financials and maybe that doesn't really give an accurate, you know, snapshot of what, where the company's at today or where it might be at in two or three years. But if you, you know, take a meeting with a company you know, you're going to do the work beforehand. You're going to, you know, you'll, you'll have a better idea by the end of it, kind of, you know, you know, like w w where they're at. So I think those conferences are, you know, kind of forces you to do the work and it's easy to kind of, you know, get going. But Brian, coming right back to you on that. I mean, what's pretty interesting about a lot of these Canadian, Canadian listed microcaps, Artem, I got you on that one. Uh, Canadian listed microcaps is that they hit a lot of those metrics that a lot of, you know, fundamental investors like to see, right? You know, little to no debt, tight cap structure, prop may, maybe near-term profitability, but at least revenue generating, right? You know, even even though those things can show up on a screen, it still seems like they get overlooked. So why why is that? Yeah, I think just a lot of people are very, you know, and I'm I'm like that too. You start off with a screen, and you know, just they use that as kind of a framework of kind of how to start doing their work. But I think you know, sometimes just, you know, sometimes there's special situations or whatnot or things that happen that kind of skew the numbers and, and, um, or, or, you know, the history might not, you know, be relevant in the future. Like, I think one of the conferences, maybe it wasn't the one you hosted, but, you know, I invested in a media company and it was, you know, two to three years of like losses. It looked like, you know, declining revenues. And, you know, first thing I did, you know, obviously talk to them, they kind of went through kind of the, the economics and, 
it was pretty clear to me that they were going to actually, you know, they have a pretty big backlog of kind of new content coming out and they were going to actually, you know, the next three years are going to look a lot different than the past two years, which would show up on a cap IQ screen probably. All right. So I'm going to ask you a little bit out there question that I haven't really gotten an answer for because we're in such a new universe now doing virtual events. You know, do you guys do a ton of one-on-ones, you know, talking with management teams virtually. I mean, is it any different than when you're at an in-person event? And if it is, you know, how have you adjusted the way in which you go about taking that one-on-one? So Chris, I'll go to you first on that. Well, Artem and I talk about this occasionally. Uh, <laughs> I like in-person events because I think people are lazy. So they, they won't. <laughs> any of them <laughs> but but i do see uh in person or sorry live or whatever uh, video events are, are great as well virtual you, you do you virtual yeah whatever uh, i mean because you could do 30 meetings in a day if it, you could start at 7 a.m and end at whatever and just do a ton of meetings so i mean there i think there are pros and cons to it but i, I like doing it in person <laughs> Well, well, let me ask you though, but like, is your approach when you talk to management teams, I mean, is it any different? You know, do you, do you care about seeing the, the PowerPoint presentation, all that though still, or do you just really want to have a conversation? Like what's, what, how do you guys think about that? I don't like PowerPoint. I don't like going through PowerPoint presenta presentations with management. I think okay. once you get management team, even a, even a good management team with their back, they feel very constrained. And they feel a lot of boundaries. I need to cover through all those 27 different bullet points on this slide. Otherwise, I'm not doing my job well. And that's not very engaging. So I love virtual meetings because the barriers to entry are lower. I am based slightly outside of San Francisco Bay Area. So many conferences are happening on the West, on the East Coast instead of West Coast. Obviously, your conference, your main event is in Las Vegas, which is very West Coast friendly. But many conferences are in New York. So I think this year, in 20, last year, in 2020, I was able to attend a lot more conferences because they're virtual, they're easier to attend. I personally do not see a lot of difference in terms of understanding the management, their character and style in virtual meeting versus in-person meeting. There is a big difference if you go and visit them at their headquarters because you also see how personnel, how you know, middle level or lower level management uh, how they communicate with the CEO when you walk with him in the corridor. Are they looking at him? Are they smiling? Are they high-fiving? Or they look at him in, in, like, in fear, like, oh my God, who is this God who is walking in this corridor? <laughs> so that's valuable information. You can pick up some cues from that. Now, I would say that is like 100 meeting per, per person, a CEO, a CFO at a conference face-to-face, -face, call it 70. And virtual would be, let's say, 60. So there is a small gap between virtual and offline meeting face-to-face. -face, but to me, it's relatively small. Got it. Brian, you want to uh, chime in on this? Yeah, I mean, I think the good thing about these virtual conferences, uh, we, don't, we talk about it a lot. I think, you know, the volume, like you could, it's easier to kind of fill up, you know, like, like Chris was saying, a, a full day of meetings as opposed to kind of you're in person, you might, you might, you know, you might get a little tired. You might eat a big lunch or something like that. And, and, and might not want to like, you know, keep going. But here it's like, you know, you kind of could, like I know Chris, for instance, he is like booked every single minute of the day, you know, like all day, like 15, 20 meetings. And like, I don't know, I just think that like, it's, it's a numbers game. So the more companies you talk to, the better chances of finding a really interesting idea. Why, why is it important for you guys to, to do the one-on-ones with companies? You know, what is it about getting management teams one-on-one? -on -one? Because, and the reason I asked, it may seem so obvious to you guys, right? But, you know, there's a lot of retail investors that are thinking to themselves, like, I don't, I don't need to talk to management. And I guess what, for some, they don't necessarily need to, but, you know, why, 
with events like this and other events out there that do a great job, you know, that offer one-on-ones where you can actually talk to management and get more insights, kind of leading the question, here we go. But, you know, for you guys, like, why, why is that so important, you know, and, and why should retail really try and take advantage of opportunities like this? Um, and, and the floor is yours. Yeah, I'll go with this one. So, yeah, so I, I think it's great because you can, you can walk through sort of every line item on the income statement and try to figure out what operating leverage a company has, has versus like a presentation. They're both good. Presentations are what management wants to tell you. And then a one-on-one is what you want to get from the, the, uh, the management team. So I think, so I think sort of looking forward, it's a lot easier to sort of see projections of the, of the company and sort of figure out what numbers could be in the future. And, and you, you learn things like you have during a presentation, a, a CEO might be tired. I guess it's the same thing with it during a uh, one-on-one, but, but I mean, you get to like interact with them as a person, see if you'd want to work for that person, you know what I mean? Just little things. And I think it really, it really, I, I don't really like going to just presentations like these guys, like we, we only like doing pretty much one-on-ones. So Very cool. Yeah. I, think, I think in the entire conference that you will be hosted, I have not watched any single company presentation. Now, sometimes it gets a little bit embarrassing because you got this one-on-one and the CEO says like, oh, have you had the chance to watch my presentation earlier today? And you're like, no. And by the way, it's not about you. I just don't watch them. I just don't do that, right? So now, if I if they were not at the same time, I would watch them. But when there is a choice between one an extra one on one and watching the presentation, no, I will go and do one on one. Two big reasons. So number one, less important, I am a lot more engaged during one on one. The brain is running. You're a lot more active because you are thinking about what the, what the person says, whether there is a good follow up to dig further. When you are when the CEO is on stage, there is no way to ask it until the end. So that's number one, but that's less important. More important is that most investors have a certain pattern of several multiple investment situations where they like to be investing. And when you meet a company one-on-one, this is a very cost-effective way, time-effective way to understand whether this company fits into five, six, seven, eight, whatever, how many number you have of your investment patterns, which naturally resonate with you and where you tend, where you tend to make money as an investor. You give me some commodity company, even if they're on the verge of a breakthrough discovery, I will not make money there because it's not what I do. I don't know how to play them well. If you give me something that resonates with me, chances that I will be successful a lot higher. So I use that those 30 minutes to figure out, I have a mental template in my head, what I want to know about the company in order to figure out what I want to pursue further. My job is to fill that template in my head or rather my digital paper in those 30 minutes as deeply as I can. And then I can always do a follow-up with management. Well, that that's actually, or here, Brian, you, I, I, I want to hear what you have to say first, and then I got to follow up to that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think doing a combination of both for me has always been good. Like I'll listen to, you know, all the present, if I'm interested in a company, I'll listen to all the presentations they've done, you know, also see how they interact in the Q and A with other investors too, to see kind of like, you know, if, if they told me something different or it's the same or, or whatnot. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, obviously, you know, I go in, you can, you can get a lot of the same information from just doing a one-on-one skipping the presentation, but I think, I think, you know, both are actually could be valuable, you know, kind of in the process. All right. So, so to follow up our real quick, uh, and this is going to be a question for everybody too, because I know you, you all probably have your own different styles when you go into some of these one-on-ones and talking with just management teams in general, whether it's at a conference or not, is 
you know, Artem, as you said, you have this mental model in your head. You know, are there certain questions that you generally like to ask each management team? Or, I mean, I'm sure you have company specific, you know, obviously, but but is there anything in general that you'd like to ask each of these management teams when you go into a one-on-one or a management meeting? There's a certain variation depending on the industry and the business model, but some of the questions are you want to understand and you can ask, you can get to the point through different questions, but the output is that you want to understand what type of problem or, or what type of problem or pain point the company solves for its customers, either through product or a service, because then you immediately can capture the customer value proposition and say, okay, that's probably appealing or probably not appealing. And then you test it through the rest of the conversation. You want to understand unit economics of the business. Do they make a lot of money or little money on every single transaction? Where they are today in terms of the scale of the business and what it means, and there is no right answer or wrong answer. A business which already at scale means they already can be very cash flow generative. A business that is just at the edge of getting to that critical scale, it could mean that the operating leverage and incremental margins will improve substantially in the next one, two, three years. So you want to understand that. And also want to understand the ambitions of the management. Do they see themselves building a business five times bigger as re- on revenue basis in a few years? Or they're like, no, our goal is to be growing GDP plus 2%, right? You want to understand that caliber of people. Right. Yeah, and I think for us, uh, me and Chris, like we work, we work together a lot on ideas and we look a lot at valuation, obviously today, like what is the company trading at? And then looking out two to three years from now, you know, like how, you know, what is Matt, like, what can they do like in terms of earnings or free cash flow, I guess, and how are they going to get there? You know, is it through margin enhancement? Is it through, you know, kind of paying down debt, lower interest expense, like just trying to understand kind of their three to five year plan, I guess, two to three years, I guess, is a better horizon in some ways because it's more realistic, but. Yeah, exactly. What are numbers now? And then what, what can they be in the future? And like, how certain can we be of the revenue growth or, or of the free cash flow growth? Like if, if a company's just paying off debt and they're decreasing uh, the amount of debt they have, then, then interest expenses goes down and you, it's, it's like a pretty easy way to increase free cash flow. Um, but, but also there, there are other like cutting costs is also a decent way that you can have a good amount of certainty. Revenue growth is a little bit more difficult. You have to figure that out, but but those kind of things, yeah. Yeah, or what's going to drive margins, I guess, too. Obviously, that's a yeah. big thing, too, like gross profit margins and how that flows down to kind of, you know, the bottom line, I guess, is always important. So so my next question then is, you know, let's talk sectors. You know, listen, you guys know me. You guys watch all my stuff. You know, I'm not going to ask for your latest stock tips or anything like that uh, or best ideas. Uh, but but let's talk sectors. You know, what, what's been interesting? What have, you, what have you all been looking at? And I, I mean, was some of these Canadian listed companies, were they uniquely positioned that they happen to be in sectors that you've already been looking at? You know, Brian, let's start with you on this one. Yeah, I think, I think as I mentioned earlier on, um, I think media is actually really interesting because, you know, there's, it's, uh, you know, from like kind of talking to management, I understand like there's a lot of tax incentives to kind of film and, and make productions in Canada. So if you're a Canadian listed, if you're a Canada based company. So I, I know you guys had a few at, at the conference. Um, and, you know, and I just think that, you know, like, like with just some of the trends with some of the SVOD subscription video on demand services, there's just a lot of money being spent on content. And, you know, there's just more and more of these coming out. And so I think, you know, whether animation cartoons or kind of, uh, I guess, documentaries or whatnot, there's just, you know, a lot of potential business opportunities. So, you know, and, and, and you know, the valuations I thought were kind of fair. I guess with the one I mentioned earlier on, you know, it was, 
at the time it was like a 70 million, you know, I bought it last year. It was like a 70 million enterprise value company that, you know, I thought at the time was going to do 15 million EBITDA for the year. And, you know, now it's gone up, it's doubled or whatever, but, you know, I still think at a 10 times EBITDA today, you know, I still think a lot of those opportunities are still the same. You know, they can easily double their revenues in the next few years, double their EBITDA. So. Gotcha. Chris. Yeah. I, I like looking at more like, I guess, simple-ish businesses like tech. It's a little bit harder for me. So I, I, I try to, I try to figure out like, it could be a services company. Like I, I made quite a bit of money and we, we still own this home care services company. Um, but, but we, I, I, I'm really more of a generalist and I try to find sort of valuation first and then sort of determine the quality of the business. And I don't want to invest in a really poor quality business, but, but I mean, there's a price for everything more or less. If I can buy something at one time's free cash flow, then I don't really care. I mean, I, I do care, but, but I mean, a lot can go wrong. You can still make a lot of money. So, so I like companies with debt a lot and those tend to be industrial type businesses uh, or, or companies like some tech, but, but it has to be pretty clear that, that it can grow for an extended period of time because you're usually paying up for more tech valuations that I'm very price sensitive for the most part. Gotcha. Artem? I'm the opposite. So cross everything that Chris said, and then it will be what I do. I'm kidding. <laughs> Actually kidding. Uh, look, I the same the same industries or sectors that I'm interested in when I look at pure U.S. companies, same interests carry when I go across the border for Canadian listed microcaps or Canadian listed companies in general. So I generally like software. I like technology. I like tech-enabled businesses. It's a lot about the industries that you know. It's a lot about where you historically made money and where you, are, you think you can continue doing so. So does it mean that I will only look at those? No, I've, I've met plenty of companies that on the first glance, I would say like, yeah, I shouldn't be meeting them. It's not the industry which I'm particularly interested in, but that's also a great way to expand your circle of, circle of competence. Go meet them. And once you meet enough companies in a certain industry, you actually learn quite a bit from management because if you spend, if you met 10 companies in the industry and you spend 30 minutes with each, with each management team, you already know quite a bit. You build that knowledge that will carry over. It doesn't mean that I'm going to invest after 10 meetings into one of those. No, but it carries over with you. So, but on the industries, I'm a lot more, again, is that technology software is, a great, is, a, is of great interest to me mostly because of strong uh, business model. And by the way, this is where the interesting potential arbitrage exists. Very often I would meet a company listed in Canada and you walk, I, I, I don't start with the evaluation. I start with the quality of the business. And after 20, 25 minutes, when I go through the business, I kind of that I have already an idea in my head where I think it should be trading. And then when you ask them, walk me through the capital structure and you figure out the relative multiples on LTM or next 12 months, just as some, valuation shortcuts and rule of thumb, very often you realize that because it's a Canadian listed business, it trades cheaper than it was, than the multiple it would have gotten in the US if it had been listed in the US. So there is this very interesting kicker, which I always find interesting. Well, let's let's go on that. Why why is why is that a thing? You know, why why do some of these Canadian listed companies tend to trade at lower multiples than maybe some of their US counterparts, even if the Canadian listed company is performing way better? There are a couple of reasons, I think, and there are probably more, but two reasons at least I can identify. This is a hypothesis, so it can be proven wrong, but hypothesis number one is that Canadian-based investors, who probably are most of the population of investors who look at those companies, may not be as appreciative of certain business models such as software as a service as U.S. investors are. That's, I think, reason number one. 
That's a hypothesis, as I said. Second reason is this. Very often, as the company gets bigger, the product gets more proven and the market position and competitive advantage gets stronger, the company gets a higher multiple. Because many of those companies listed in Canada are relatively early in their life cycle, they would get a low multiple as well. Now, but remember, as an investor, I am betting, I'm not betting on multiple expansion by itself. I am betting on a certain business outcome. So if a company has 40 million of revenue today, and my business outcome that I expect after doing my analysis that they will get 220 in four years, multiple will most likely expand because the company will be more proven. I think that's the second leg of the stool. If anybody wants to add the third leg of the stool so it will be more balanced stool, guys, please do that. Chris, Brian? Yeah, we see it sometimes in, in sort of what we look at. It, it seems like Canadian investors don't like debt as much. So there are a lot of really cheap companies um, in Canada that have a lot of debt and I like deleveraging a lot. So, so it's, it's an interesting stomping ground for us as well. Yeah. And sometimes it's also sector as well. Like, yeah. you know, a lot of things get lumped into oil and gas because Canada has a big presence out there, but then, you know, you kind of look through some of the names and, you know, diversification, maybe a portion of the revenues are tied to oil and gas, but they do other things as well. So it kind of gets that oil and gas multiple, even though, you know, it's actually more of a growth kind of story, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. We, that yeah. Oh, sorry, Chris. Yeah, we, we all have a spreadsheet and we go through A, a to Z on um, on uh, Canadian stocks. So so it's it's interesting to go through metals and mining companies or energy companies and then figure out which ones are E&P and which ones aren't. And they do get like grouped in together. And there's really not that many companies that are not either like pot, EV, metals and mining or energy on the Canadian list and exchanges. So so it's actually like a your, your market's like pretty small. So right. Yeah, I was I was gonna say. I mean that you know, if you're if you're not looking at all the sectors and your focus is really on you know tech and you know industrials, entertainment, especially entertainment, um, you know, like it's a really small universe. I mean, it's maybe less than a hundred names. Just just and we're not talking about valuation metrics. We're just talking like literally if you did if you did a screen yeah. for just those sectors, you know, like it's mm -hmm. it's not a lot of names. Yeah, you know, so it makes it easier. Slightly, slightly. You still got to do the work. It's interesting with the CPCs because there are a lot of tech companies going public now, and the uh, so so it's sort of adding to that list. Tell everybody what a CPC is. Uh, Capital Pool Company Corporation. I think. It's oh, called. the SPACs. Oh, you're talking about SPACs. Yeah, it's SPACs. It's SPACs. Oh, okay. I mean, okay. I, I'm not saying that they're necessarily the like the best. You shouldn't shouldn't invest in every single one, but but I mean, it's an interesting way to to look because yeah. most of them are tech based. Yeah. All right. So, so, so let me ask you guys a question, you know, for those who are listening, who, you know, may have never looked at Canadian names or, or maybe even just getting started in, in microcaps and just looking at the space, you know, let's, let's get into some, some anecdotes, you know, tell us about a story that you learned the most from, you know, I haven't had each of you on my, on planet microcap individually. Don't worry. We will. And we'll get into, you know, all the everything's there, you know, but I'd love to, I'd love to hear a war story now, you know, remember we're at the bar and we're, we're sharing drinks. So, you know, tell, tell, I'd love to hear from each of you, you know, uh, Chris, let's start with you. Give us a war story where you learned a lot from. Ooh, a good, a good story, bad story. Uh, I'll tell you. <laughs> so, so sort of um, one of my first like major successes. We'll save, we'll save the bad story for in the market trenches with those boys. They, they would love, they, <laughs> Gary, Gary and Eric would love to hear about that one. <laughs> the, the bad story was an EMP company that went to zero. So <laughs> I, I didn't All hold right. it. I sold right. it. <laughs> Nice. Very okay. Canadian story. 
Yeah, that that's that's a real war story. But uh, <laughs> that lesson the hard way. Uh, but um, uh, th- th- there was a home care services company that that my friend told me about. Uh, he wasn't sure if he was going to buy it or not. He, I don't think he ended up buying it, but but I got to know the CEO uh, really well. And uh, I went to a couple of their offices and uh, I went to their office and or their, their, they, they were consulting different regions of the country. And I went to their Massachusetts office and spent, uh, I don't know, four or five hours with their head of the Massachusetts unit. I was talking on the phone with the guy every day. Um, but but it, it, it was basically, it was a roll up of all these little businesses in the United States. And that's sort of what, this was maybe three years ago or something like that. And that's what, why I started really looking in Canada because I didn't realize how many companies, how many great companies, like that's very good business. And at the time the company was trading at maybe five to six times, it was a tiny company, but it's five to six times like steady state EBITDA uh, and, and comps were trading at 24. And then the company's gone up, I think, I don't know, three or four X since then in a couple of years, but, but still there, there's so many small companies that, that are businesses that you completely understand because they're, they're, they're U.S. businesses. You have easy access to management. You can go visit their offices in the United States, very real companies, but, um, but in the numbers are the same. So it's, it's great. I love it. So. Very cool. Brian. Yeah. I talked a little bit about, I guess, some of the media earlier on, but I guess another area, you know, that I've kind of looked at and I found interesting, as I mentioned before, oil and gas a little bit. And when I say oil and gas, like, like we mentioned, it's more, you know, we're interested kind of in the private equity type assets in the sense, you know, some of these man camp companies that I think are kind of interesting, you know, remote hospitality and whatnot. And, um, you know, that ranges from, you know, operating the physical like infrastructure, kind of like a hotel in the middle of nowhere uh, to renting kind of modular units. And, you know, I think the modular units one, it could be interesting too. Like, I guess without going into too many specifics because I'm still kind of active in the name, um, you know, they announced a contract a few months ago that was almost, you know, worth, you know, the entire enterprise value of the entire company. So, you know, you get situations like that where it's just like no one's paying attention to it. No one cares about it. You know, it's a good business, generates a lot of cash. And, you know, three to five years from, you know, over time, you know, it will command a higher multiple because hopefully the results are there, you know, and, and it's doubled probably since then. But I mean, I think there, there's a lot of upside, um, you know, in, in looking in those areas for that reason. All right, uh, Artem, love to hear more from you as well. Two, two big picture points. So number one, you ask like, how do people get there? And I think the answer is, okay, there are probably a bunch of stories, but the good stories are those once you get a stock, once, once you invest in a stock in Canada and it goes up to 100%, you kind of got hooked. You want to experience that feeling again and again and you keep looking for those in Canada. So that's kind of big picture idea. And in terms of a story, Look, there are some peculiarities about Canadian listed companies. I'll give you one of them. Many Canadian companies have a lot more warrants in addition to options given to employees. They, many of them have a lot of warrants issued to investors, typically as part of secondaries, that US companies of the roughly same size will not have. And this is what interesting happens. When you ask, talk to management that ask them, what's your share account? They will take shares that already have and sum up the warrants and give the number. Very often in the decks, they give the, they give the people that number. And the number kind of correct, but, and this is what many people look at. But what people forget is that when those warrants get exercised, there will be a bunch of cash coming in. So in management, US management under these circumstances would almost always will use treasury method of accounting to properly calculate dilution. 
Canadian management teams, based on my experience, do not tend to do that. So very often when you, when you ask them share account, they give you the number, it's actually overstated compared to how US investors and US companies would normally look at that. So that's an example of a war story that you need to be mindful about. Well, hold on, I gotta follow up. Like, so what happened? So you, <laughs> you, real, you, like, you, when you were looking at the company, you realized that this was the case. You're like, oh, well, this is not what I thought in a good way or a bad way. Yeah, it's in a good way. Like in that, in that example, right. it's a good way. So you okay, look and right. then you get told, right? After you do a virtual meeting with a company, you look at the numbers and you're like, like no, like the share count is low when the management is saying in there that given how it should be analyzed. And like, wow, that's actually good news. So the company is cheaper than I first thought. So right. that's a good outcome. That is a good outcome right there. All right, guys. I mean, so so let, let's get everyone's. Uh, give, give me some final takes. You know, I mean, we got a long year ahead of us. You know, there's going to be a lot more virtuals this year that we'll host, and others are going to be hosting. So you guys are going to be super busy. You know, if you had to give your advice, because I, I I talk to a lot of management teams that at, at our event and just in general, and they they watch these interviews because they want to know more about the investors that they're going to be potentially meeting with at these events. So if you had a final take for any management teams, maybe that are watching this and that you might meet in the future, you know, what, what are some of the things that, that you would, uh, some advice you'd give them that would help them, you know, in any meeting, not only with you guys, but maybe in general. So Chris, I'll go to you on this one. Go to your conference, go to every single one. Of your <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my advice for them. I was unsolicited, I promise. I did so not take them on. the time when you disclose <laughs> any payment arrangements that you have yeah, yeah, exactly. today. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I mean, answer the phone. Like, the, the problem with a lot of OTC companies is that it's impossible to get in touch with management teams. Like, trying to go through A to Z on that list is, like, the biggest headache in the world because you can never get in touch with anyone. Uh, on the venture, they, or, or CSE or, or any of these other, that uh, they have a deck which is crazy. It seems like for a lot of small companies, they answer the phone when you call them, they answer emails when you call them, but be responsive, uh, be responsive to uh, shareholders uh, because people are looking for ideas. There, there are tons of good ideas out there right now. It's just, you have to, you have to pitch your story. So a lot of companies are not as great at marketing as they could be. So, or even just at the very least, just, you know, it's one, it's one thing to go to events. It's another thing just to pick up the phone and talk to investors. Yeah, exactly. but, some, but but as you see with some OTCs, they don't care, right? Like they're like, you clear, you like the story, especially like they do this a lot to retail, which is a shame, but you know, they're like, oh, it's a retail investor. Like, 10 times before they answer me, so. Yeah, and and, and look at the, at, the, at the same time, you know, look, they're running their businesses, you right. know, I, IR is important. It's important to, you know, talk with shareholders as well. We're not, we're not diminishing that in any rate, but I mean, even you guys are kind of like, Listen, they got to run their businesses. I'll, I'll contact them because I, I have a pressing question. So, I mean, that's actually good advice for any retail investor or, or institute, you know, a fund manager or anything like that. Like, you know, they are busy. Don't waste their time. Have good questions. I mean, that, that kind of goes without saying. But, you know, at the same time, you know, Brian, you know, what, what are some things for you that you, you, you want management teams to know that may potentially take a meeting with you or, or just participate in any, any of these events? You know, what, what's something that's yeah. important to you? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I know uh, Chris and I talk a lot about it as well. I guess there's a couple of things. One, being able to kind of, you know, a lot of these investor presentations, there's a lot of detail in them and they can get kind of confusing and like, you know, too much background information. I mean, at the end of the day, like we want to know kind of like, 
you're at XYZ point today, you know, in three to five years from now, kind of what's your kind of long-term kind of goal and path and, and, and just articulate that, you know, and, 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 you know, as opposed to kind of getting caught up with kind of some of the, you know, nitty gritty kind of stuff as well. But I also think the management teams themselves, like, I think if you're really passionate and excited about the business, like, and, and you know, and you should convey that, like, don't like for us, we've invested in companies where I guess people would say, Oh, it's a promotional CEO or whatnot. But like, you know, if you're, if you're, you, you want to kind of invest in companies that I think, you know, yeah. the, the guy's passionate, lives, breathes, and sleeps the company. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to just invest in a company where, you know, they're just trying to pro promote their stock or whatever, but you, you know, if the guy's a lifetime entrepreneur, it should come across that way, you know, it shouldn't be afraid of like hiding, you know, Right. There's that balance. There's that balance between like passion and really eat, sleep, drinking their business. Right. I mean, that's something yeah. that we I've talked a lot about both on here and then and also on Planet Microcap is like, it's 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 as an investor trying to find when you're talking to management, you know, really weighing like, all right, are they being promotional? Are they, are they... Well, the job, right? We have yeah. to ones are lying, which ones are telling the truth. It's so hard. Or, or I mean, being a little bit overly. It, it's so hard, you know, because like on one hand, like you get really charismatic management teams and you're like, hey, that's just who they are. And they're also, some of them are actually good managers. Like, what are you going to do? You know, but I actually know investors, some that don't even like charismatic. Nope. Next. You know, like they, they just want, they just want the numbers or sometimes that's why they don't even go to these things because they know that they're, you know, they're there to market, you know, or at the same time, some will like wait a couple days and say, all right, I just did 10 one-on-ones. Or I just did 10 meetings or I just talked to, you know, however many management teams or whatever. Let me get the weekend, you know, let me, let me, let me take this all in because sometimes you're just like, it's a little overwhelming of the, the pitch a little bit. Yeah. But, mm. I, I think all of us would agree that these are one of the best tools to uh, generate ideas going yeah. and meeting with 50 companies over two days or, or whatever is like just hearing their story, hearing them be promotional. And then you're like, wow, this guy's saying that in three years, they're going to be training at, two times EBITDA, like, that's interesting. I mean, that right there is the most important part about why you, we want to put on these no. events and everybody should yeah. participate because, yeah, I mean, look, it's one thing to come through and do the research and yeah, you're going to find out a lot of information, but you also could go to this and take a 30 minute meeting and realize like, okay, I can save myself hours of research when I can just talk for a half an hour and realize like, I don't know. I don't know about this management team, you know, like it, it, it can help you in that sense. So Artem, love to get your take on this as well. Well, I probably will have two suggestions. Since you asked for unsolicited advice to management teams for three of us, I'll probably have a couple of recommendations. But before I go there, I have an idea for you, Bobby. Because remember two minutes ago, you said, well, it's always difficult to say whether a particular person is telling the truth or whether they, I wouldn't say lying, but grossly exaggerating. Here's an idea for you. How about this? Next conference, it's SNM conference sponsored by Polygraph. Oh, <laughs> whether, whether the person is telling the truth or not. And they can be your sponsor. You'll get a royalty. That's a good business. Oh, man. That is the greatest fucking idea I've ever heard. <laughs> I, I'm going to do that. I, I'm I'm gonna do that. I got it. Oh, that's so funny. Okay, oh my god. Sponsored by Polygraph. Oh god. Now two serious suggestions. So, good. so, so number good. one is very utilitarian. I would say that management of companies that work in a highly specialized areas. 
probably okay let's blow me up enough and then i will share I'm sorry man that was so funny <laughs> that was so good oh my god i love it so much sorry sorry all right I'm, no, I'm, no, no, that's fine that's fine like look all, so of us, all, all four of us here <laughs> the goal is to have some fun connect in the virtual world when we cannot connect offline so if we have a good laugh that's good Oh yeah, it's great. Man. Oh, that was so good. I'm gonna use that. I, I I love that so much. All right, I'm sorry. Unsolicited okay. advice. Here we go. Recommendations. So number one, if the company is if the company operates in a fairly specialized area, maybe medical technologists, maybe EMP, maybe something else. Don't assume that all your vocabulary that you routinely use will be easily understood by an investor who is a generalist. If you put me in front of companies from certain industries, I'm sure they will give you enough lingo where, which may go a little bit over my head, right? So some, some industries I know well, and I know all that lingo. Some, not so much. So for many investors who meet the companies and they want to learn something new, again, don't assume that investors will know your industry very well. Ask them, and if the, and the investor says, yes, I'm very familiar with software, you can go as hard as you want. If people say, no, you know what? I'm actually kind of new to renewable energy. Yeah, take it slow, dumb it down a little bit. So that's number one. Number two, I have observed over time that there is this mismatch and disconnect between these two ideas. So if you ask any management team and you ask them what type of shareholders you want, most likely they will tell you, well, we really want long-term minded shareholders who really understand what, they, what we do and who are really loyal and all those things. And by the way, that's the right aspiration. But then management teams at best will give guidance publicly for next quarter. There is a disconnect, disconnect here. If you want long-term investors thinking on two, three, four, five year time horizon and you give next quarter guidance and you don't talk about your long-term vision, there is a clear mismatch. So my suggestion is that if you truly want, as a management team, if you truly want long-term market shareholders, outline in a clear way your long-term vision, and then people will be self-selecting. That's my second suggestion. I also think, I guess we didn't talk a lot about it, but like I guess capital allocation kind of to Artem's point as well is like obviously important. I know a lot of investors, they like to see kind of the CEO, the management team, you know, if they're you think this is gonna be the greatest thing in the world we want to see like they're in the open market buying stock you know like like just you know kind of eating their own cooking kind of is is always i think a, a good message to send people very good all right gentlemen we are there so let's close out where everybody can go and find more information about you and your firms so chris where can people go and do you guys have twitters i don't think you guys do i yeah, think some of you i have a twitter but i don't really yeah. use it that much i'll give you my handle in one second it's at we're going to do for you what we did for the good prick, okay? Yeah, so, uh, yeah. THCAP 2016. THCAP? CH, CH. Adam Harbor Capital Cap, CHCAP 2016. Very cool. All right, Brian? Yeah, so you could find me on uh, LinkedIn. So I guess just to give a little bit of context as well, I'm also, I work for a firm called Rabati uh, Securities as well. Uh, it's a registered broker-dealer. Uh, I run, as as uh, Bobby said earlier, I run a friends and family private investment partnership called BRW Investors LP, which is really just like close friends and family. So easiest is probably if it's a neutral kind of reach out uh, through LinkedIn, uh, or you could um, send me an email at bweber at rabati.com. Very good. Artem? 
You're right. Not many people on this uh, meeting today are active uh, Twitter users, which is different from what typical people do. So the easiest way to get in touch with me are twofold. Number one, either through the website, Carl, C-A-R-O-K-A-N-N-Capital.com. And for people who are wondering, Karakan is a chess opening. Uh, so that's where the name comes from. So that's one way to get to get in touch with me. Second way is also LinkedIn, Artem Fokin. That's all. Artem, you're assuming that nobody who's watching this has not watched The Queen's Gambit, okay? No, I think many people, okay, <laughs> so, the level of, okay, I will, I, I have lost count of how many people uh, reached out to me and said, like, hey, have you watched Queen's Gambit? They mentioned Karakan. <laughs> now I know what it is. So, yeah, like, the number is countless. And by the way, I still have not watched the show myself. Oh, yeah. so, it's, but, it's good, yeah. It's really good. Yeah, I think you'll like. It. I mean, we 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 knocked it out in a week. It was really good. But and then wait for the full disclosure. Caracan Capital has not been a sponsor of the show Queen's Gambit. Just for <laughs> just, for, just you know, he wouldn't be talking to us today right now if he was a sponsor, probably of that show. Let's just <laughs> let's just all be frank here. So with that, gentlemen, thank you guys for joining me today. This was a lot of fun. I'm sure we'll do another one soon. You guys are all welcome back on every round table, and I'm sure I'll have you on for individual Planet Microcap shows uh, in the future. So with that, thank you, gentlemen, and thanks, uh, Bobby. Talk soon. Thank you, Bobby. Yeah, thanks, Bobby. Thank you.